Welcome to Brave Church. Thanks for listening in today. Regardless of what you believe, where you come from, or what questions you might have, you are welcome here. We're a multi-site church based in the Bay Area. You can get more information by going to brave.church. We hope this teaching helps you find and follow Jesus. Hey, welcome Brave Church. You know, this last week, Tracy and I were having dinner at a couple's home from our church, and we were getting to know each other and sharing our passions, and the husband shared something from a place of deep personal conviction. He said, we need revival, but revival isn't something that happens out there. It's something that happens in here. In my heart first, it starts with me. When you hear the word revival, what do you think of? Revival is a word that has some history, some baggage to it. You may have images like of a large white tent or a small country church with a guy wearing an expensive suit that's yelling and sweating a lot. If you were raised in a non-religious home, you may think of revival as a bunch of people that have the crazies. If you've attended church for a while, you may have your own memories or experiences. Growing up, my revival experiences were primarily events our pastor would put up a very large banner that said revival on the side of our church building and then invite an evangelist from out of town. It was usually a two or three night event unless the spirit began to move and then it was you know seven straight nights or longer. For us as kids, it was a nightmare because we went to church every night, stayed up really late and then we had to go to school the next day. And I always wondered, why do they call it revival when by the time it was over, I did not feel revived, I was exhausted. But then there's what I would call a true revival, the revival that we all need right now in each of our hearts. It's the one that makes all the others pale in comparison. It's when people begin to sense their need for God. It's uncoerced. It's unsolicited. It's not advertised or marketed. It's a genuine, organic groundswell of people beginning to seek God. Those were the moments in my life that changed my life forever. It's often been described as a movement of God's Spirit because it's hard to describe or define unless you've experienced one. The first great awakening happened in 1727. It started in Germany. It spread to Great Britain and then to the American colonies. And during that time, 250,000 people were living in the New England area. And of the 250,000, 50,000 were added to the church. For perspective, if the same thing were to happen here today in San Ramon, it would mean 15,000 people would be added to the churches in San Ramon. Another 8,500 would be added to all the churches in Danville, and another 12,000 in all the churches in Dublin, and over 16,000 in Pleasanton. You get the idea, 52,000 people would come to Christ in our valley, not even counting all the other cities around our area. Can revival happen today? Of course it can, because revival will happen wherever people begin to turn their lives and priorities back to God. When we planted our first church in Lincoln, California, we saw 10% of the whole city find Jesus through our one church. We experienced a revival that impacted the culture of our entire community at that time. During the Welch Revival of 1904, five million people from all over the world were converted in only two years. In Atlantic City, New Jersey, the city's population at that time was 60,000, and it was reported that only 50 adults were unconverted. Oswald Smith describes the revival coming as this unexpected tornado. 
The churches were so crowded that multitudes were unable to get in. Meetings would last from 10 a.m. in the morning until 12 midnight with three different services every day of the week. Evan Roberts was the person that God used to ignite the Welch revival, but, but Evan Roberts actually did very little preaching. It was primarily singing, worship, testimonies, and prayer were the chief features of the Welch revival. There were no hymnals at that time. Uh, there were just people that were finding God that had not learned any hymns yet from their childhood. There was no choir. There was no offering. There was no advertising. In one five-week period, 20,000 people joined local churches. The last major revival that went through California was called the Jesus Movement. And it took place in the early 1960s, and it went into the 70s here on the West Coast, and it spread throughout North America and Europe and Central America before subsiding in the late 1980s. Young people were coming to Jesus Christ by the tens of thousands, and they called them Jesus people or Jesus freaks. Prior to that revival was the charismatic movement, which involved mainline Protestants and Catholics. They shared seeing and experiencing supernatural things similar to those recorded in the book of Acts. Both the charismatic and Jesus revivals called the church back to a closer biblical picture of Christianity. The Jesus movement was so widespread, it left a legacy of many new churches that continued beyond the revival to reach many more thousands of people. True revival changes a community and impacts the culture. They're not humanly made or orchestrated. Revival means to bring something back to life that is dead or seemingly dead. Revival can be a private moment where God strengthens us and renews us, or it can also be an event, a visitation where a lot of God stuff happens in a lot of people's hearts all at once. In the book of Nehemiah chapter 9, we find an entire community experiencing a revival. Let me read it to you. In verse 1, it says, On the 24th day of the same month, the Israelites gathered together, fasting and wearing sackcloth and putting dust on their heads. Those of the Israelite descent had separated themselves from all foreigners. They stood in their places and confessed their sins, the sins of their ancestors. They stood where they were, and they read from the book of law of the Lord their God for a quarter of a day and spent another quarter in confession and worshiping the Lord their God. Stand up and praise the Lord your God, who is from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, and may it be exalted above all blessing and praise. You alone are the Lord. You made the heavens and even the highest heavens and all their starry hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. You give life to everything, and the multitudes of heaven worship you. In Israel's revival and all the other revivals we just mentioned, we see the same four core characteristics of revival, a return to Scripture, worship, prayer, and repentance. I believe worship is a key to bringing revival to the souls of the Bay Area to help people find and experience God. When people are genuinely hungry to know God and to praise Him, revival begins to happen. And when people decide, I want more than what this life has to offer me, when you begin to hunger for a personal encounter with God, big things happen. The tension, though, is apathy. 
Our spirit wants to seek God, but our human flesh does not. Our flesh does not want to be revived. Our flesh does not want to make attending church gatherings with God's people a priority again in our lives. We like to be complacent. We like to be comfortable. But our world and our society is not going to let us remain apathetic. And more importantly, God wants way more for your life. I want way more for your life. So I want to talk about how to experience revival. Number one, do the important stuff every single day. What's the important stuff of your faith? It's reading the scriptures. It's talking to God every day. It's praying and seeking God, but with a tenacity, with an intensity. The longer you remain indifferent, the longer you feel that church life doesn't matter as much to you. And that's a scary drift that you can't afford. Community with God's people matters. In Hebrews 11, it says, God is a rewarder of those who earnestly seek him. In the 1940s, Dr. Edwin Orr, a professor of theology, wanted to take a group of his students on a field trip, and he wanted them to, to see and experience some of the things that they had been studying together. And so he took them to, on a field trip to the homes and the workplaces of some of the great theologians of old, and one of them was John Wesley's home. John Wesley was one of the great reformers and evangelists of the church. And much of his writings on doctrine and theology are what the church rests on today. Well, Professor Orr's students loved the idea of going to John Wesley's home because they had studied John Wesley's theology and life story. When they walked into his home and into the kitchen, they, they saw the kitchen table where he once had meals. They went into his study and they looked at his desk where he had sat. They marveled at some of the books that were still there preserved on his bookshelves. And as they ran their fingers through across the spine of those old books, they were excited to see the literature that was there. They looked at some of his handwritten notes that had been preserved still on John Wesley's desk. And after that, they left the study and they went upstairs to the bedroom to the most intimate dwelling of John Wesley. And as they walked inside of the bedroom, they filed around the side of the bed, and there beside his bed, Professor Orr pointed out two very well-worn patches that were marked into the carpet floor next to John Wesley's bed. Every morning when John Wesley would get up, he would plant one knee and then the other into the same two spots on the carpet. He would begin his day there, not, not for a couple of minutes, but for several hours, asking the Lord to bring revival to the church. Day in and day out, he prayed that God's Spirit would sweep through America in power and authority and that people would come to know Jesus Christ as Lord. The prayers of John Wesley and many others led to the very first and second great revivals of the 1900s, which swept across the United States. And it was during those times that thousands of people were coming to know Jesus. It started with two patches on the floor beside a bed, just one person bending his knees before God. Well, the students filed through that bedroom to take note of everything that they saw, and they, they left the bedroom. They walked back downstairs. They all got back onto the bus to continue their tour. When Professor Orr got on the bus, he counted to make sure that all of his students were there when he realized that one of his students was missing. So he walked back into the house, into the kitchen, Nobody was there. Walked into the study. Nobody was there. 
He walked upstairs, and as he got to the top of the stairs, before he crossed the threshold to go into the bedroom, he could hear that someone was inside. And as he walked into the bedroom and, and walked around to the side of the bed, there was one of his students on his knees. And each knee was planted in the exact same spot where John Wesley had worn patches into the carpet. There was one of his students praying out loud in a soft voice, Do it again, Lord. Lord, would you do it again? And Lord, would you please start it with me? Professor Orr went over to him and rested his hand on his shoulder and said, Billy, the other students are on the bus and it's time to go. And rising from his knees, Billy Graham went out and joined the rest of the students on the bus that day. Revival starts with me. It starts with you in your heart. It starts with a personal prayer of repentance and it ends with praying for others to find the Lord too. And that's what, what the purpose of Brave Church is. We exist helping others to find and follow Jesus because revival is not ultimately about me, it's about others. In 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14, it says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I'll forgive their sin and I'll heal their land. In Nehemiah's day, as in all the other times of revival, there's a return to the scriptures, to prayer and to worship, and people begin to want to know what God has to say because the world has no answers, only strife and conflict. And so they leave the altar of politics and they begin to hunger for God again, and we need that desperately. There comes a point in a person's life where they get it, racism, hedism, Materialism, narcissism, cynicism are no way to live. And when you see the ugliness of those sins, you realize that the human effort alone cannot cure the virus of these sins. We need revival as a nation. Number one, do the important stuff every single day. Number two, acknowledge our mistakes and make a U-turn. Jesus told a story in the Gospel of Luke that speaks to us today, and I want to read it to you in Luke chapter 18, verse 9. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told them this parable, verse 10. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you this. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God, for all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. The Jesus prayer is prayed in this parable. The Jesus prayer is thought to be as old as the church itself. The Jesus prayer is one of the simplest and most powerful prayers you can pray. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. 
Repentance is humbling and it's freeing. Repentance is a good thing, not a condemning thing. The word means to change your mind, to change the way I think about myself, the way I view God and my life. It's a paradigm shift from an old way of thinking to a new way of thinking. In Nehemiah's day, the people were no longer focused on those who once held them captive. They were no longer victims in their own land. They had experienced a paradigm shift in their thinking. Isaiah said, see, I'm doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? Can I see the new thing that God is wanting to do in my own life? Sin blinds us. Prayer enlightens us. Let me ask you, how are you stuck these days? There are so many reasons why people are not experiencing revival, and one of the most common is unforgiveness. Have you ever gotten a blanket like all wet? Do you remember how heavy it is to move a wet blanket? A wet blanket is a heavy burden. Imagine carrying one around everywhere you go, draped over yourself. Unforgiveness is like carrying around a wet blanket of, of pain. It, it dampens your soul and it makes you feel numb to life. When I acknowledge my own mistakes first, I change my condition. When I forgive others mistakes against me, I can heal and I can become free again. Forgiveness is when I relinquish my right and desire to punish the person who hurt me. When you forgive someone, you free yourself. And that feeling revives you and gives you hope. In Acts 3, it says, repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. Who doesn't need a time of refreshing these days? How do I experience revival? Number one, I do the important stuff every single day. Number two, I acknowledge my mistakes and I make a U-turn. And number three, I come back to a heart of worship. A lot of us have been going through a lot. Anxiety, depression at whole new levels, isolation, pain, violence, conflict, the list goes on. How is your worship these days? How worshipful is your own heart? Has the pandemic drawn your heart away from a heart of worship? Have you become distracted by the cares of this life? The enemy of revival is thinking life is good enough and that we are good enough. Being trapped in our own bubble of self-centeredness and isolation. We cannot experience more unless we hunger for more. When a sponge is full of water, you can't get any more in without giving something out. People have withdrawn from their public service in their giving and their willingness to serve and be there for others. Their lives have become preoccupied with their own self-comfort. And when our lives become more about worship and less about ourself, that's when revival begins. At the heart of worship is surrender. And in today's culture, we're taught to, to never give up control. Well, worship is the opposite. It's resigning from trying to be God in your own life. You cannot isolate and be your own source without doing damage to your own soul. Worship is returning to God, trusting God with, with the outcomes, admitting my own limitations, praying the Jesus prayer, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. 
When I give all of me to all of Him, when I surrender, I experience peace, I experience freedom, I experience a revival deep in my soul. Oftentimes, what we see in the natural is a preview to what is yet to come spiritually. When Jesus Christ was crucified, it looked like defeat, it looked like all was lost, but then came the resurrection. Our nation and our world has been ravished by a worldwide pandemic, a virus that kills, steals, and destroys, and we're trying to get up off the mat. Listen, the Spirit of God wants to bring life. The Spirit of God wants to bring a spiritual awakening of repentance, of love, of forgiveness, of revival to our land, and He wants to do it here. How do we experience revival? It's by doing the important stuff every day. Find your space to place both of your knees in prayer before God. Acknowledge your mistakes and make a U-turn. Come back to a heart of worship. Come back to a place of dependency on God. During this last summer and these last few weeks, I've been struggling to find the right words in prayer. I've not known how to pray. My father's lost a great deal of weight. He's skin and bone. He has numerous health issues. He's spending his days either in a remote wheelchair, a recliner, or an adjustable bed. And I've not known how best to pray for him. My mother has a type of cancer that's in the blood and in the bone marrow. And as of this week, her platelet count, the normal range is 140 to 400. Hers is 62. The doctor stopped chemo treatment because of all of her blood counts, counts are too low. My younger brother has blood clots in both lungs and a leg. His red and white blood counts and his platelets are all low. My mother-in-law has dementia. My wife Tracy has MS and is struggling. My own spiritual condition is in need of God. I need God and I haven't known how to pray. So I began this summer asking God for mercy. That's all I knew how to pray. God, I need mercy. And so I've been praying for mercy for myself, praying for mercy for my family, for each member of my family, praying over all of you, praying for God's mercy. I've been praying the Jesus prayer. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. As I began praying for God's mercy, I found myself praying the very best prayers for those that I love. You see, God's mercy is the very best of all that God has for us. When I don't know what to pray and I ask God for mercy, God knows exactly what we need most. This region that we live in, the San Francisco Bay Area, needs mercy. They need the mercy of God. We need to turn to God. And praying for revival is a good thing. Doing the important stuff that creates a revival in your own life is even better. It starts with me. What if we were to acknowledge our need for God? Do you need mercy in your life? Do you need God in your life? Have, have you drifted? They call it the big book in AA. Page 417 says, acceptance is the answer to all of my problems today. It carries with us this idea that I can, I can find no peace until I accept that my life is as God intended it to be in this moment. 
It's not about me choosing what's best for my wife, my mother, my father, my brother. It's about me accepting what is and surrendering the outcome to God. I think you have needs in your family. I think some of you have drifted from God and you know it and it's scaring you. And it should. We need Jesus. Your family needs Jesus. Your marriage needs Jesus. We need Jesus. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. What needs to change is not the circumstances of your life or anyone around you. It's your heart. It's my heart. It starts with me. When I turn to God, I find solace in praying this prayer for mercy towards all the unsolvable problems of my life. When I ask God for mercy for myself and those I love, I'm praying my very best. And when I begin to pray for the San Francisco Bay Area for mercy, when I ask God for mercy, a revival begins in me, a recognition that I'm powerless and I need a Savior, and perhaps you do too. Perhaps we all do. Perhaps it begins for each of us on our knees. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. It starts with me. Amen. Thanks so much for joining us today and listening to today's teaching. We really hope this message has impacted your life. Now, if you'd like more information about who we are, you can visit us at brave.church. There you're gonna find more information about our on-campus gatherings, our upcoming events, and ways to give and partner with what God is doing through our church. Also, don't forget to subscribe to our channel and hit the like button on this message. Thanks again for joining us and we hope to see you next time.